This is Science Melab, a radio show exploring science and learning about the scientists of the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about pollinators of the Southwest, who they are, what they do, and how their behavior and numbers are changing with land use and a changing climate. It's a good show. Stay with us. I get to spend a lot of my time sitting down and being super still and just watching pollinators visit plants as they sip nectar and rub the pollen from an anther to onto their legs and just kind of be their friend for a little while. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Molly McCormick about pollinators. Molly is a recent graduate with her master's degree from Northern Arizona University. There, she studied pollinators, and she worked to set up habitat for pollinators in the Southwest. With Molly, we explore the relationship between pollinators and the plants they pollinate, and how those relationships change with land use and climate. We begin our interview with Molly explaining the types of pollinators that exist in the Southwest. We have bees. That includes honeybees and native bees. Butterflies, moths, bats, hummingbirds, beetles, and flies. That's most of them. And in the Southwest, it's really we have really high bee diversity. So there's 4,000 species of bees globally, we think. And about 1,700 of those are in the state of Arizona. So that's a really high proportion of native bee species in Arizona. And I think you can kind of extrapolate that into the larger Southwest. Bees really like arid climates. Why? They like dry nesting sites. Most of our bees are solitary ground nesters. So they like sandy soils or loamy soils to excavate their tunnels in. Most of the bees live their lives alone and they'll mate. The lady bees do most of the work. All the the male bees do is eat and mate. The lady bees have the hard job. So they dig their tunnels, collect the pollen. They'll make what's called a pollen loaf. You can think of it like a bread loaf. And they'll deposit that loaf into a tunnel. They'll lay an egg on it. They'll close up the tunnel and then they'll go make the next one. And if there's enough flowers for them on the landscape, they can lay a lot of eggs. And that's sort of like their way of hedging the bets against climate. The more eggs they lay, the better off the next generation might be. Is this most of the species are doing this that we have in the Southwest? I would say most of them are solitary ground nesters. Yeah, other bees might have similar life history traits is like um, where they lay their eggs in a given nest but they might nest instead of in the ground they might nest in trees they might nest in rock piles the only other bees that aren't solitary are honeybees which are not native they were brought here from europe and africa 
and bumblebees. Some bumblebees create colonies. These bees, it sounds like, rely on pollen to be their primary food source. Is that the case with most of the pollinators in our area? Most pollinators use um, nectar and pollen. So pollen's high in protein, nectar's high in simple carbohydrates. Um, some pollinators, like hummingbirds, also eat other insects to get more protein and more calories. But it's kind of a combination of the nectar and the pollen that they're collecting. And that's bees too. And bees too. Bees too. Yeah. Mostly it's the nectar that they're, they're sipping on, but then they use the pollen for their young. Oh, interesting. How are the bees collecting the pollen? So they visit a flower and they have these special combs on their legs and special pollen carrying hairs on either their legs or their stomach. And the hairs are called scopa and they'll take their combs and they'll get the pollen off of the anthers of the plant and then they'll collect it and comb it off of themselves and put it into the scopa. So I don't know if you've ever watched a bee visiting a flower, but some of them look like they have really big saddlebags and that's just those specialized hairs carrying a bunch of pollen. And they're either on their legs or like I said, on their bellies. And how much pollen are they collecting at each flower? That's a really good question. I don't know. They're definitely not taking all of the pollen off of a given anther. An anther is? The male part of the flower. The part of the flower that has the bright, it's usually yellow, pollen grains. And how many flowers are they needing to visit in order to create their loaf? Researchers have been finding that it can be beneficial to have multiple species of pollen in the loaf because they each provide a different, maybe micronutrient or some other resource. Um, but in general, pollinators exhibit some sort of fidelity to a species. And that's just to increase the efficiency of their foraging. So just like you and I, we like to do our shopping in one, one store, one stop shopping. Pollinators are not much different. They'll kind of clue in to whatever species happens to be blooming and they know exactly what they need to do to land on that flower to walk around the inflorescence and collect the pollen in a really efficient way and it's better if they can go to many flowers of that species and not have to switch up their strategy midway. Does the amount of pollen that a plant has within a species differ from plant to plant? Definitely, the resources that a plant has shifts from plant to plant. It shifts from hour by hour sometimes. Um, because if you think about it, the flower wants its pollen to be transferred from it as an individual to the flower next door to it so that it can create a seed. It really doesn't care to give any of that pollen to the bee or any of its nectar to the bee. But it has to produce nectar in order to attract the bee. And it has to produce enough pollen so that the bee can take some, but still transfer it over to the neighbor. The bee doesn't care that it's transferring pollen. It just wants to grab enough resources to lay eggs and to stay alive. There's sort of this conflict that goes on the and trickery. So the flower is trying to produce enough to attract the pollinator, but not so much that it's using more energy than is necessary. And the pollinator is just trying to be efficient. So it's kind of cool because within that conflict, the world has created so much beauty. All of the diversity of flowers that we see, 
are different ways of tricking pollinators to visit it. In all of the diversity of the bees we see are the response from those flowers shifting and changing and creating new species. And so you are kind of referring to, it sounds like, some coevolution. It's definitely a coevolution. We call it mutualism in ecology. And mutualism is um, an interaction where both organisms benefit. And flowers and pollinators are a classic example of coevolution, where small changes in one sort of beget small changes in another, so much so that eventually you get a new species. The coevolution in pollination systems is rarely one-to-one, -one, meaning it's very rare that you find one flower that only gets visited by one pollinator. And this is a really good strategy if you think about it, because if you're a flower, you want to be visited by everything if you can. And if you're a FB, you want to, for example, you want to be able to visit whatever you can find on the landscape. Um, so in so most of um, our pollinator species are what we call generalist, where they will visit many different things. There are some that are specialist, where they will only visit one thing. One example in the southwest is the creosote bush, which is um, in the desert scrub communities of the Sonoran Desert. That bush is really old. Uh, it's one of the oldest living organisms we have in the southwest. And because of that, it has a pollinator that will only visit it because it's been around for so long. Another good example of a really tight mutualism that's rare is the yucca and the yucca moth. Yucca actually do only get pollinated by the yucca moth, even though many things visit it. And the yucca moth um, lays its eggs inside of a yucca flower and the larvae, instead of eating pollen, they eat the seeds of the yucca. But the yucca has compensated for this by creating many seeds. But in exchange for this, the yucca moth, after laying its eggs, will actually take pollen and deposit it on the female, the stigma, the female part of the flower. And this is the only example in nature where we, where we know that a pollinator is actually consciously pollinating. And it's because its young depend on successful pollination of that plant. That's so cool. It is really cool. What are some of the strategies of other pollinators? Like, how does the pollen actually get transferred? Well, a hummingbird, for example, will stick its t long tongue down into the bottom of a flower to get nectar. But in that process, it might get some pollen on its face. So then when it visits the next flower, the pollen might fall off its face and onto the female part of the flower. And um, pollination first evolved with beetles and the beetles would crawl around a flower and eat the pollen and then defecate. So it was actually the dung of the beetles that was actually um, creating the pollination, making pollination happen. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. So all plants, not all plants need to get pollinated through an external source. That's right, About but about 80% of flowering plants do. So there's 20% of plants, flowering plants, that can they don't need an insect to pollinate, or maybe they reproduce by vegetative means, so they produce other plants through their roots or something like that. And what are they using to pollinate those, those ones that don't rely on pollinators? Well, dandelions, for example, only like when they're ready to be to create seeds, they'll create pollen, and they just need 
the smallest hint of maybe an insect landing on them and their pollen tubes will actually start growing and end up spreading genes from the male part of the flower to the female part and they can be self-pollinating so they don't need the pollen from the neighbor they can just pollinate themselves super cool yeah which is kind of why we see dandelions everywhere and with a lot of fuzzy seeds floating in the air because they're able to create those seeds by themselves so they can have almost 100 percent seed production every time wind pollinated plants have to produce a ton of pollen and that is really hard to do all the time especially if you live in a place like the arid southwest where you don't have a lot of moisture conditions growing conditions are often harsh you need to reserve as much energy as you can so if you don't have to produce a lot of pollen in order to reproduce you're going to do that and you'll do that through the help of a pollinator It's actually vibrating its body in order to get pollen grains from deep inside the flowers to fall towards it. The bumblebee unhinges their wings from their flight muscles and moves those muscles extremely rapidly to make the vibrating motion. Here is the familiar sound that bumblebees make as they are vibrating. dynamics? That's a really good question because we we don't fully know how the non-native pollinators have changed things because they were brought over so long ago before people started paying attention to pollinators. Um, But it's kind of mixed. It just depends on the situation. Honeybees can be really important in um, an ecosystem for transferring pollen, especially in a degraded ecosystem where maybe a lot of the native pollinators can't make a living very well and they've disappeared. Um, In some cases, like in the um, tropics, there's a lot of island pollinators, um, birds in particular, that have gone extinct. And the non-native pollinators in those situations have kept the flowers from going extinct. So they can be really important. But they can also out-compete, you know. A lot of honeybees in a given spot might be taken up all the nectar and taken up all the pollen and not allowing the native bees who are less aggressive to have access to that to those resources so it just depends are there examples of a pollinator going extinct and then a plant going extinct definitely orchids are an example of um Oftentimes, they need one pollinator specifically to pollinate them. So they are really susceptible to loss of pollinators. Most other plants are generalist. They'll welcome anything. Um, but there are some, some plants, and orchids are one example, where they re- they're really reliant on another creature. And then there are also a lot of non-native plants. Mm-hmm. And so then how is that changing pollination dynamics? Well, non-native plants, um, the response can also be 
complex um, or both positive and negative. So if the non-native plant is out competing all of the natives and you end up with a large area that's just one species of plant, that is going to reduce the number of pollinator species that then visit and can live in that area. So that's not good because you lose diversity and you lose resilience to change. However, if it's a really marginalized place, like a place that's received a lot of disturbance and most of the flowering species have left, an invasive plant that can establish and do really well can provide forage where there wasn't before um, and at least support some population of pollinators and that can be beneficial. Non-native plants can, if they're not out competing all of the natives, they can increase the amount of forage on a landscape, so that can be beneficial as well. Or they can extend the bloom window. Um, so say the native plants are only blooming in response to monsoon in say July to September, a non-native plant that blooms in May or October can really help support the pollinator community that, that lives at that site. How do pollinators make sure to coincide with the correct blooming times of plants? Well, the pollinators are usually responding to um, environmental factors, um, so precipitation, but probably mostly temperature, um, sometimes the angle of the sun in the sky, and that's what and ground temperature, that's what's triggering them to come out of their nests or hatch. Um, and start to fly about. Plants also respond to these things, but in a different way. And so when you get climates that have been consistently more or less the same over tens of hundreds of years, you get similar responses from plants and pollinators. And that when the pollinators emerge, they can pretty much count on um, the same species of plant being there for them. But now that we're looking at environmental change or just changes in precipitation or shifts in mean annual temperature, we're seeing that plants are responding differently than pollinators now. So the pollinators will emerge to not find anything to eat or find something that's completely different and not appropriate, not adequate. It's like they might emerge to find like convenience store snacks out on the landscape when really what they want is a Thanksgiving buffet. Are there examples of this happening? Definitely. Um, in the Rocky Mountains, there's a glacier lily that is one of the first things to bloom. It'll pop up its little yellow blossoms out of the snow. And it's doing that earlier and earlier as, as winters get warmer. And in the past, it's been the queen bumblebees that emerge to pollinate these plants. But now as the those flowers are emerging earlier, the queen bumblebees come out, and they might find no blooms, they might find those plants already uh, in seed, and that's negatively affecting both the plant and the pollinator. Another example is um, the, the nectar-feeding bats that live in Mexico, and when they come up through the Sonoran Desert of southern Arizona, to live in their um, summer homes in Arizona, they usually follow the bloom of swarrow blossoms. But swarrows have also been blooming earlier, so now they come through without having very many nectar resources. But what's interesting in that case is that the swarrows are still able to set seed because they're getting pollinated 
not by a bat, but by the non-native honeybees. In general, how are our pollinator populations doing in the Southwest? Well, pollinator populations across the globe are suffering. Most um, plant communities are showing reduction in seed production, a reduced seed production, and populations of pollinators are in decline. In the last 40 years, we've seen something like 50 or 60% of farmed honeybees um, lost, which is outstanding and um, a really big problem. It's, the, it's called the bee colony collapse disorder. But also native pollinators are being harmed as well. And a lot of this was from some of those environmental changes we mentioned, like invasion and changes in climate, um, but also how we use our lands. Um, when we disturb the land and we disturb plant communities, we're reducing the amount of forage available for pollinators and sometimes a really large section of land, especially if there's been a lot of grazing or development from one kind or another. This has impacted in the Southwest our native bee communities, our butterflies, our hummingbirds. It's a really big problem. And what first got you interested in this work? I really just kind of fell into it. I've um, always loved flowering plants, but being just a botanist was not enough for me. I was really interested in relationships and not just ecological relationships or relationships, something that's those sort of exterior, but also how humans play a role in all of that. So that's why I got into restoration. And I like pollinators because they're fun. They're, you know, plants and pollinators are beautiful. I get to spend a lot of my time sitting down and being super still and just watching pollinators visit plants as they sip nectar and rub the pollen from an anther to under their legs and just kind of be their friend for a little while and I spent hours and hours doing this um, maybe not so zen sometimes because it's hard to maintain concentration for hours but um, it's just it's just fun to do it and I feel like it's really important and then what do you enjoy about being a scientist I like being a scientist because I feel like if we really want to understand the worlds we live in we need to have we need to be skilled observers and science has given me the tools to be a skilled observer. I think a lot of times we're not we don't give nature the voice that it deserves and science allows us to translate the voice of nature so that it can play a role. You can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.